Hi, this is Samuel, and you're listening to the Small Talk Podcast. This podcast exists to provide you, my listener, with information about things you probably know of, but also maybe don't know that much about. This is something you can listen to while you're working, or while you're taking a walk, or really while you're doing anything in between. You give me 20 to 25 minutes of your time, and by the end, you'll know a little bit more about the random topic of the day than you did when you began. In today's episode, I'm going to talk to you about the man who was possibly Nigeria's most infamous head of state. He's been called a kleptocrat, a dictator, and Time magazine named him the 1995 Thug of the Year. Today we're making small talk about General Sani Abato. Sani Abata was born in 1943, on the 20th of September, in the Hausa Fulani quarter of Kano. His family was from Borno. They were a merchant family of Kanuri descent. There isn't that much to tell about his early childhood, but we do know that he went to Kano Provincial Secondary School from 1957 to 1962. After completing secondary school at 19, he joined the military through the Nigerian Military Training College. This wasn't really surprising, because at this time, educated Nigerians saw the military as a quicker path to elite status than through civil service or business. By 1963, at 20 years old, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant after attending the Mons Defence Officers Cadet Training College in Aldershot, England. He finished from the military training college a year later in 1964. A year after graduating, he married a Shua Arab from his home state of Borno called Miriam. Like him, she also wasn't born in Borno, having been born in Kaduna to a woman named Nana Jida. Together they had 10 children. In between having all these kids though, he was making his way up the military ladder. He did this step by step, and in 1993 he became the first Nigerian soldier to attain the rank of a full military general without skipping a step. He was also quite experienced in the art of the coup d'etat, and we will be looking at his life and progression through the lens of successive Nigerian military coups. Starting off with the July 1966 counter-coup, which saw Yakubu Gowon succeed Aguirre Ronsi as the head of state. Abata was still a second lieutenant with the 3rd Battalion in Kaduna. Despite his somewhat lowly status, he was said to have participated in this coup from a conceptual level, although what that means specifically isn't really clear. When they were all done with the coup, he went back to England to continue his education in the School of Infantry. By the end of 1966, he'd been promoted to the rank of lieutenant. 1967 brought on the Nigerian Civil War, and by then he'd been promoted to the rank of captain. During the war, he was promoted again to the rank of major, and he fought as a platoon and battalion commander. The New York Times reported that after the war in 1971, Abata's superiors recommended that he not be promoted beyond the rank of colonel because he wasn't considered stable enough for higher command. As history tells us, this advice wasn't taken and he continued to advance step by step up the military ladder. The decade after the Civil War was a somewhat peaceful decade for him. It seems he focused primarily on education and military advancement. By 1972, he had become a lieutenant colonel, and by 1975, a colonel, 
and the commander of the 2nd Infantry Division. By 1980, he was made a Brigadier General. Between and beyond all this, he was also racking up certificates. He went to the Command and Staff College in Jaji in 1976, the National Institute for Policy and Strategic Studies in Jos in 1981, and he took the Senior International Defense Course in Monterey, California in 1982. He was also involving himself in political affairs. At this point, the relative peace of the 1970s was drawing to a close, and the three coups in which he would be a major participant were fast approaching. On the 31st of December, 1983, a voice was heard on the radio. The voice began by saying, I, Brigadier Sania Bata, and then proceeded to inform the country that the Second Republic of President Sheu Shagari had been overthrown by the military government of General Muhammadu Buhari. This coup happened partly because of declining economic conditions, at a time when the prices of oil weren't doing too great. At that time, Nigeria was very dependent on oil, which pretty much still is the state of affairs, but what that meant is that falling oil prices had an impact throughout the economy. General Buhari wasn't able to do much to improve the economic situation of Nigeria, but his government was rather good for Abacha, and he was promoted again, now to the rank of Major General. He was also appointed to the ruling Supreme Military Council. Two years later, in August, General Abacha was at it again. As the economic state of Nigeria continued to decline, he partnered with General Ibrahim Babangida to depose the man that they had raised together, with General Babangida taking his place as head of state. And while he didn't make the declaration himself this time, it was done in his name. Once more, this coup was accompanied with promotions. He became the chief of army staff and a member of the new Armed Forces Ruling Council, and in 1987 was promoted to Lieutenant General. Throughout his career, despite persistent advancement, and even into his time in the future as head of state, General Abacha was never really one for the limelight. He preferred to work from the shadows. This defining trait of his kept him as a low profile during the Bangida regime a regime full of repeatedly broken promises to hand over power to a democratic government. He played a major part in putting down a mutiny led by Major Orca in April 1990, which could have claimed the life of the head of state, General Bangida. Abacha was the only member of Bangida's government to stay on when the head of state stepped down in response to widespread protesting after he annulled the results of the June 12 election in 1993. This election appeared to have resulted in a victory from Moshud K. Oabiola. Abangida chose to hand power over to Ernest Shunika instead, as an interim president. This happened on the 26th of August, with Abacha staying on as his defense minister. Eighty-eight days later, Ernest Shonikon resigned from office as the interim president. He handed power over to General Sani Abacha. This was to be his fourth and final coup, placing him at the very top of the government. Abacha himself announced the resignation on the national broadcast, citing socio-political uncertainties as the cause for Shonikon's resignation. 
He promised that the government would return civilian rule within the next two years. But if you've been paying attention, and well, from what you probably know, that did not happen. The day after stepping into power, Abata dismantled all elected institutions. He terminated all national and state assemblies, closed independent publications, and banned all political activity. He also replaced civilian governors with military administrators. Abacha's reign was met with some protests. Actually, over the course of it, there were quite a number of protests. One of the earliest protests was carried out by oil workers who went on strike. Unfortunately, this strike was responded to with violence by the military, and it was broken within two months. By May 1994, his government announced the Constitutional Conference. This was more or less a sham, though, because one-third of the delegates were to be Abata's own appointments, and the government retained the right to reject decisions made by the conference. In June, Chief MKO Abiola declared himself president of a government of national unity. For his efforts, he was accused of treason, arrested, and held indefinitely. He eventually died in prison. The Abata government had also given itself powers, placing itself above the authority of the courts. The result of the conference was an indefinite postponement of civilian elections and a vote for an open-ended term of military rule, which I think shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. Before 1994 was done, Abata had imprisoned journalists, politicians, labor officials, and rights activists. He had also shut down three major newspapers. By 1995, his government claimed to have squelched a coup, and after that, it was reported that between 60 to 300 officers, along with 40 civilians, were executed. He also had then Lieutenant General Olushe Gombasunja arrested along with 39 other people. This was met with pleas for leniency from international figures like Pope John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher. And on on October 1, 1995, Abata acquiesced and lifted the death sentence. A month later, however, he did not listen to appeals concerning Ken Sarawiwa, despite making assurances to Nelson Mandela that he would commute the sentence if a death sentence was passed. On November 10, Ken Sarawiwa, a writer and a human rights activist, and eight other people were hanged. They were popularly referred to as the Ogoni Nine, and they were activists opposed to the exploitation of Nigerian resources by multinational petroleum company Royal Dutch Shell Oil Corporation. Wolishwenka was also charged with treason in absentia. Sarwiwa's death was appalling to the international community and resulted in Nigeria's suspension from the Commonwealth of Nations. Nigeria also faced a number of sanctions from the US. This didn't seem to deter Abata much, though. A man who was often described as paranoid, he retired officers who could possibly be perceived as insufficiently loyal in purges, once in 1993 and again in 1995. In January 1996, a group called the United Front for Nigeria's Liberation claimed responsibility for the plane crash which killed Abata's first son, Ibrahim. He was 28 years old.
Now, it shouldn't, it shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone that during the course of his reign, Abata spent a lot of time cracking down on dissent. He did this with the help of his chief security officer, Hamza al-Mustafa. For his purposes, he amassed a personal security force of 3,000 men trained in North Korea. The Nigerian police force also underwent a large-scale retraining. Despite all this effort, though, suppression of the citizenry wasn't all that he did during his reign. Under his regime, Nigeria's foreign exchange reserve rose from $494 million to $9.6 billion by 1997. He also reduced external debt from $36 billion to $27 billion within this period. He constructed roads in major cities across the country, and he oversaw the reorganization of Nigeria into six geopolitical zones to be more reflective of cultural, economic, and political realities. He put an end to privatization programs from the, from the Babangida regime, and oversaw a 45.5% drop in inflation to 8.5%. The GDP of the country grew as well. However, this growth was largely centered around the petroleum sector. He set up the Petroleum Trust Fund and mandated it to publicize its accounts. At the time, it was the second largest public corporation. His wife, Miriam, set up what is now known as the National Hospital in Abuja. It was originally named National Hospital for Women and Children before it was up upgraded into what was intended to be Nigeria's number one public hospital. She also initiated Nigeria's family support program and went on to earn the title of the Crusading First Lady for her role in chairing, in 1997, the first summit of African First Ladies. Whatever progress they made, though, is generally overshadowed by the prevalence of corruption during his reign especially perpetuated by him. In 2004, he was ranked fourth on a list of the 10 most self-enriching leaders of the previous two decades. He is alleged to have looted something between $1 billion and $5 billion during his time in power. Much of the money looted was alleged to have been moved overseas with the help of his son and other associates. To this day, large amounts are still being repatriated from foreign countries. On the foreign front, he played something of an ironic role, supporting forces for democracy in foreign countries while suppressing democracy in, in his own country. In 1997, he welcomed the Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi to Kano during the latter's West African tour, directly flouting UN sanctions. The two of them were greeted by thousands of supporters. As defense minister, he intervened in the Liberian civil war through the ECOWAS monitoring group. As head of state, he intervened in the civil war in Sierra Leone, and by February of 1998, Nigerian troops took Freetown, paving the way for a democratically elected president. He also had relationships with Americans on both sides of the aisle, 
as well as civil rights figures like Reverend Jesse Jackson and Minister Louis Farrakhan. Farrakhan notably supported his administration. Earlier on in the course of his reign, a date had been set for transition to civilian rule, the 1st of October, 1998. By early 1998, he announced that elections would be held on the 1st of August, the result looking like it would be fairly certain, given that he had coerced all five political parties into endorsing him as a sole presidential candidate. But he never made it to that date. General Sania Bata died on the 8th of June. The death of General Abacha is wrapped in controversy, which maybe would have suited the man who chose to stay away from the limelight. The official statement is that he died of a heart attack. His chief security officer, Hamza al-Mustafa, believed that he was poisoned by Israeli agents in the company of Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian political leader. Accounts surrounding his death also suggest he was in the company of Indian sex workers, flown in from Dubai, who poisoned his drink or his fruit. Which I think is where the popular legend of the poisoned apple comes into play. Lastly, American intelligence analysts believed that he was poisoned by political rivals. However, as he was buried the same day, according to Muslim tradition, an autopsy couldn't be carried out. And so we can never definitively know how the man died. It is said that when Abacha died, there was rejoicing in the streets. Taxi drivers gave free rides, storekeepers gave out free drinks. Ultimately, one can assess that overall, the general mood around his death was jubilant. After his death, General Abdul Salami Abubakar became head of state. He then ushered in the fourth Nigerian Republic. Like I've already said, General Abacha was a notoriously private man. He was known as a man of few words and deadly actions, and he rarely revealed much about himself. He gave no interviews and kept to the presidential villa, that's Asur Rock. He would arrive at his office late in the day and work through the night, staying aloof even from his own ministers and military advisors. In 1995, an article in the New York Times reported that journalists who have gotten too close to the subject of General Abata's personal life are often arrested. And even in Nigerian circles, little was known about the dictator's life beyond what could be found in the public record. But his face, always obscured by dark glasses, was seen throughout the country on billboards that proclaimed, Abacha is the answer. Alright, so that's what I have for you about the late General Sani Abacha. I hope that I've been able to give you at least one new thing to talk about, should the topic of kleptocratic dictators ever come up. If you like this, please leave a review or rating if you can, and if you can't, then just tell a friend who you think might be into it. Either way, you could just tell a friend, that would be awesome. I'd also like your feedback. You can get through to me at, on Twitter at Dami underscore OJ. That's D-A-M-I underscore O-J. 
Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Till the next time.